This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Good morning. Our first reading this morning is from Mark's Gospel, Chapter 1, beginning at the 14th verse. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. The second chapter, uh, second scripture meeting is from uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Hear the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, let's pray before we look at God's word. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives the glory of your great name. Amen. Now, as many of you may know, I uh, last year had the great privilege, along with Catherine and some others, of going on a tour to Turkey and Greece and Rome. And one of the highlights of the tour, in fact, was going to the centre of what is now Turkey, to a Christian community who had tunnelled churches out of caves uh, right from the earliest times that Christianity had reached there. We know that the Apostle Paul was active in the middle of Turkey and certainly uh, the Apostles and the many disciples were planting churches all over that place. 
They carved churches out of the rock and over the centuries had painted those churches. Now, there were no Christians there, or very few now, sad to say, not since the 1920s. And so you go in there and these are not, uh, these are not active churches, but you uh, imagine. You imagine what it would be like to be worshipping, what those Christians would have been like, to worship with them in these churches. And you see on the walls the extraordinary, beautiful images that they painted there. And it's like a message from thousands or more years ago, sometimes closer to 2,000 years ago. A message of what they held dear. There you have the stories of the Bible, pictures of uh, Jesus Christ that says something about what went on. And those uh, churches too are resonant because you know that they would have sung They would have sung to one another, not only have painted their churches with wonderful pictures, but sung the praises of Jesus Christ in those buildings. The passage we're looking at today is a little bit like those pictures. It's a song that comes to us from the earliest times of Christianity, the earliest days. It's words that would have been on the lips of our brothers and sisters way, way, way back then. And perhaps it's because we don't hear in our heads the notes they used to sing. It's easy to forget just how singable early Christianity was, how their adoration of Jesus Christ just couldn't be contained by ordinary bald prose or expressed in chit-chat or in a series of horror of horror bullet points, but always resulted in them singing about it. This is why this song is so precious and why I urge you now to pick up the order of service and turn to it, hold it in your hand and have it before you as we look over it, as we contemplate it, a gift to us from our brothers and sisters of so many years ago. They sang. They filled their lungs and sang as if the words were a living part of them, dwelling in them richly, a lived reality, because it's exactly what these words were. And they sang the same words that we today sing. If the thought that the scriptures resemble a Broadway musical in any way, it all makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable, then I'm afraid you'll need to get used to it. Because the scriptures are filled with songs, from the song of Miriam, to the song of Deborah, to the song of Hannah, to the Psalms, to the song of Mary, to the angels in the sky above Bethlehem, to the holy choirs in mighty anthem around the throne in the book of Revelation. All is glorious song. The end point of all things is the song of creation around the throne. The people of the book, God's people, are nothing more than those whose calling it is to adore God with their praises. The remarkable, even shocking thing about the gospel is that it calls people to adore Jesus Christ, to worship this man as only God may be worshipped, to exalt him as only God may be exalted. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Paul the Apostle has composed or adapted a hymn in his letter here, reminding the Colossians of the words that they would sing, or perhaps composing them for them. The Christians adored Jesus Christ. This is who they were. Indeed, the words we have today in front of us, particularly from verses 15 to 20, are one of the most famous of the old hymns of the church. 
Now, two weeks ago, we opened the book of Colossians by hearing how Paul gave thanks for the Colossians. They gave thanks to God for them. Then last week, we heard how he prayed for them. But this week, he reminds them of a song. It doesn't look like a song because of the way it's printed in our Bibles, but New Testament scholars have long recognized that there's something verse-like about the words that are here. What's this song about? Well, to put it simply, Jesus Christ is the center of everything. The scope of this hymn is big. It is enormous. It's 14.5 billion years across this song, with nothing in time or space lacking from it. And even the end of life is no boundary for it, since death was not an obstacle to the figure at its centre. And the size of the picture should make us think for a minute about the people who were hearing this and singing it. They were little people living in an uncertain world. A world that had no apparent point of coherence other than the Emperor of Rome and his legions and his bureaucrats. They came, don't forget, from a world in which many deities were apparently fighting for supremacy over the material order. Poseidon in the sea, Hades in the underworld, Zeus in the heavens, to name but three. Each supreme in his sphere, but none over all. And the result was, with gods simply everywhere, chaos. Reality was a seething mass of conflict for them. For our part, we are continually reminded by the grand prophets of our times, the Hawkinses and the Dawkinses, that the feelings of insignificance we have when we stare into the depths of deep space are probably right. That there is no hinge on which the universe turns, or at least not any hinge that we can see. And so you'd better make the best of a pretty bad lot and rescue Whatever meaning remains from the rubbish heap, from the chaos and the mess, so be it. It is, as we say, what it is, right? There's no point or purpose. There's only, ultimately, power. We're kidding ourselves if we think there's right and wrong. There's only power. But that is not the impact or the import of the Christian gospel that we hear about in these words. For Jesus Christ is the linchpin, the still point around which it all turns, the hub of the wheel. For, says Paul, in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. There is purpose, there is to say, to be found in this one. The purpose of all things, the secret to the meaning of things, no longer concealed, but now declared in broad daylight, now sung from the rooftops. But we ought to think this one through because it's far too easy for us to say it and not really grasp it, not really understand it. What could it mean for you and I to say, to sing that this one, this Jesus Christ is the centre of the whole created order, that the universe in its vastness and its diversity, its incomprehensibility holds together in him? Well, that's why this hymn helps us by telling us a story. There's a then and there's a now in this hymn. There's what happened in this story way back when there's what's happened in more recent times and what will happen in the future and this story adds up to the meaning of this extraordinary person what then are the things that happened well firstly things were created they were made 
And this one, this Jesus, was the agent by which they were created. The existence of things is his responsibility and gives him power and authority. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, outside of the creation, not himself created. Before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's the linchpin, the centre, the hub of the wheel. It's the same thought that we see in Revelation chapter 4, where God, we hear, is worthy of worship, precisely because he created all things, and by his will they were created and have their being. If you create, you rule. In the mind of the Bible's authors. Because you have priority, it means you have authority. Who is before all things? Christ the Son is before all things. And the song makes this clear, and it's remarkable. In him all things were created, and then it goes on, whether, can you see, thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. It's a remarkable choice of things to particularly single out. Because here is a political statement. It's as political as it could be. No one has precedence over the sun. Not your Nero's or your Putin's or your Xi Jinping's or your Modi's or your Biden's or your Trump's. They're all merely derivative of him. They are his creations. They are merely creatures of God the Son like everything else. They inhabit a reality that he has made and that he determines. That is for him. But introducing these powers and authorities is also a way of saying that all is not as it should be in this creation. For there are those powers and authorities that do not recognise the authority of the Son by whom they are made. Indeed, they defy him. They persecute his people. They act as if they are self-made and self-justifying. Indeed, as we went round the ruins of the ancient world on our tour, we were taken to the temples of the emperors, for the emperors thought that they too ought to be gods alongside the other gods. And they built extraordinary buildings and put statues of outsized statues of themselves in the buildings. So that part of your civic duty was to come and worship the deity that was Caesar with extraordinary arrogance. And yet, their power is as nothing to the power of this one. He makes and so therefore he has authority. He creates and therefore he rules. But the creation of all things was just the beginning because... He is also, in verse 20, the one through whom God acted to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And this is quite specific now, not simply referring what happened concealed from our view before the creation of the world, before time began. Now we are dealing with the events of merely a couple of decades before this song was written. The blood, sweat and tears of history itself And the focus is the event of the cross on which Jesus Christ shed his blood. This blood was no ordinary blood, since the the one on the cross was not ordinary. The bloodshed was an act of peacemaking or reconciliation between the creator 
and the creation. It was a making of final restitution between those two entities, the creation and the creator. Notice how the scope of the peacemaking matches the scope of the creation itself. Jesus dies not just for a few select elect individuals to rescue them from a failing planet before it dissolves, like popping them on some lifeboat. His blood is what reconciles what? All things in heaven and on earth. Nothing is beyond the reach of the cross. It is a vast atonement of things as well as people, of cats and rocks and trees, of suns and moons, of nebulae and seas and atoms. It is all-encompassing, transdimensional, universal and cosmic. And it's right that we pause here for a second and entertain just for a second the godly heresy that all people are saved. For could how, how could such an act of reconciliation fail in any instance? How do any fall through the net if we are to believe these verses? How do all things not include all people? But the moment of reconciliation, the divine peace that Jesus wins is, don't forget, a victory. Not simply the end of war, it is a victory. It is an assertion of his authority. And that means excluding evil from the world that God has made. That means defeating those powers and authorities that are arrayed against him, that defy him, that ignore him, that say he does not exist. Everything will be put in its right place. And that means that resistance to the power of the Son is defeated. All resistance. So that justice is finally done. That means that yes, every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But that some will be outside of the kingdom. And we now trip as we went around those cages, uh, cages, caves I should say, in Turkey. Um, we, as I said, saw many of these ancient churches covered in frescoes. And one of the favourite images of the early church was Christ Pantocrator, meaning Christ the ruler of everything. The all-powerful, the almighty. It's a picture not unlike the one in our stained glass window of Christ ascended as king. And it's a remarkable feature of early Christianity. It comes from passages like the one that we're reading today. For the reconciliation of all things means Christ's rule. The role that Christ plays in creation and reconciliation is the same. You'll notice that he's called the firstborn over creation and then the firstborn from the dead. And why is he called the firstborn? So that everything he might have the supremacy. The firstborn, firstly, he is that in the sense that he is the prince, the heir, the one for whom creation exists. A designated title with authority derived from the invisible God of whom he is the born first. And he is born first from the dead, not finally defeated by death that he suffered, but triumphant over it, delivered, so to speak, from the womb of death, the womb tomb, if you like. His supremacy sealed in that extraordinary victory so that even the power of death does not stand anymore against him. And the heart of his princely rule is in two things that he does in this passage. Firstly, he mediates the power and authority of the divine king to the creation. 
And secondly, he, like a good king, makes peace. We get this idea of mediation from that opening statement that he is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God, familiar language, we'll come back to how it's familiar language, perhaps to us if we've read our Bibles. He is the very icon of God the unseen. The immortal, invisible God, only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes, now made visible to us. No one has ever seen God, says John in his gospel, yet God the Son has made him known. He is the visible representation of the one who can't be represented. You want to see God? Look at Jesus. Fundamental to Israelite religion, of course, was the fact that you weren't to make images of the divine, but here is the image of the divine, the one who represents God to the creation. And here is the one who takes the role originally given to Adam and Eve. For you remember, in the Garden of Eden, they were made in the image of God to represent God to the creation. Here, Jesus does that. Secondly, we hear that God was pleased. A word that reminds us of the baptism of Jesus. That God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell on him. I love that word. It's uh, in Greek, pleroma. Pleroma. It's a great word. And it, means, it means completeness, fullness. It means that Jesus has not just the attributes of the divine being, being the complete and not partial embodiment of God, but that through Jesus Christ, God worked. Confined, we may have thought, in the space allocated to an ordinary human body, but the expanse of the divine being focused at that one point so that the creator can do business with the creation. When it comes to revealing God, there's nothing lacking in Christ, for the fullness of God dwells in him. And this means if you know Christ, if you are in relationship with Jesus Christ, you are in full relationship with God. There is nothing, there is no extra needed. There is nothing concealed from you in that. You have real relationship with him. All the fullness of God dwelt in Christ. So in Christ, you're not anywhere else but in God. And we have in him a declaration of peace. For Christ the Prince, like a good prince, reconciles all things to himself. From the far reaches of the heavens to the depths of the earth, he brings them all together. They cohere in him. And now they are reconciled in him, not the Pax Romanum, but the Pax Christi, the end of the disturbance and disruption and rebellion of all things. All things are reconciled to him because he reigns over all things and are now, even now, at peace. And that includes the church, the gathered people, the tiny, insignificant gatherings in Colossae and down the road at Ephesus and over the sea in Jerusalem and over in Greece and Thessalonica and a few other towns. He is the head of this body. They are now the people of this true empire. This is where the little piece of people of Colossae and the little people of Darling Point too find that we are part of this cosmic story. As we see in verses 21 to 23. Paul turns to the Colossians and says, Once 
You were alienated. He might be speaking to us. We were alienated from God because of our sinful behavior. We were at war with the Creator. But now, in the great reconciliation of all things, we too have been reconciled through the death of Christ, through His blood shed on the cross. We are now purified and justified with no one to accuse us, true citizens of the kingdom of the Son that God loves, the kingdom of light. And so, two truths, two mighty truths to take away. First of all, be of good cheer, because the whole sweep of world history is going Christ's way. The arc of history bends towards Jesus Christ. Christ is the Pantocrator, Almighty, the ruler of all things. Nothing escapes him. Nothing gets round him. Nothing surpasses him. Do not then despair or feel crushed by the forces that are all around us. Do not be overwhelmed. Do not be tempted to believe in them either. Do not be taken in by their apparent power. Do not fear them. Do not fear the rise and fall of evil people. Do not fear even death, for these are simply road bumps in the outworking of all history. God's plan and purpose in creation is being accomplished in Jesus Christ in a mighty act of cosmic reconciliation. This is the good news that we hear today, the gospel that's being proclaimed to the whole creation that we sing about, remind each other of week by week. Do not move, says Paul, from that hope. Cling to it with all your might, for it is a sound hope in which you can have confidence. And secondly, give, your, give the Son your wholehearted praise and acclamation. Sing the song. Don't hold back anything from him in your words or in your world. He is the worthy recipient of all your adoration, an extraordinary object for your delight. He is to be praised, not only with your lips, but in your lives. The aberration, the oddity, is when anyone keeps anything from him. If we were to learn anything from Paul here, it would be to let our theology spill over into doxology. This is not simply theory. It must end in practice, in life and in language. Let your delight in Jesus be never-ending, your rejoicing constant, for he is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. For Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.